0: this day, nobody has ever, ever logged in to that
1: $330,000 platform. Nobody
0: integrated it. Nobody
1: did anything with that software. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives, and that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to the tools you need to create, grow, and protect your wealth. You can also join our weekly live sessions, and most importantly, you get access to the risk reduction lessons I've learned from more than 600 guests. Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. Fellow risk takers, this... Is your worst podcast host Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Craig Hanley. Craig, are you ready to join the mission?
0: Absolutely, I'm ready to share my worst investments ever.
1: <laughs> it's through the worst we get to the best. All right, I'm going to introduce you to the audience, and ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to sit down and relax for a moment because I want to walk you through this somewhat exceptional life. That Craig has lived. And I'm gonna read it out as if I'm telling a story. Craig Hanley is an author of a best selling book called Hired to Quit. He is a musician writing music for artists all over the world. He is a bit of a comedian who has done stand up comedy on Broadway in New York City. Craig also moonlights hmm, as CEO of his company, Listen Trust, named number one in business products and services on Inc. magazines. 500, and 5,000 list. That company does $150 million in sales for their clients and answers hundreds of thousands of customer service lead generation calls. Listen, Trust employs close to 1,000 awesome people. And Craig now runs a social media company called Social Close. That's gone from zero to 600,000 in revenue in the past 60 days. Craig, Ladies and gentlemen, Craig has cage-dived with great white sharks and rappelled down Table Mountain in South Africa, driven the Baja 500 Trail in Mexico and hyped through the jungles of Malaysia. In Iceland, he snowmobiled across a live volcano, swam in the Blue Lagoon and dove in the famed Silfra Fissure, the only dive site in the world where your dive is in the crack between two continental plates We're glad those didn't squeeze together at that time. He is also the 85th civilian in the world ever to jump out of a plane from over 32,000 feet out of respect. Mosquitoes just do not bite this man. Craig hung out on Nectar Island with Richard Branson, met Ringo Starr, and bumped into Paul McCartney before security escorted him back to his table while trying to get a selfie. And in Calgary, he had a scarf blessed while meeting the Dalai Lama, which he has since, unfortunately, misplaced, but not the good vibes that it gave him. He has partied with Akon, Snoop Dogg, and many other celebrities who asked him for his autograph because they thought he starred in Vikings or Game of Thrones, or he did not correct. Of course, he did not correct their thinking on that. And for the listeners out there, Craig's got a massive beard that he's supporting. Whew, there's a lot of stuff. He served five years in the U.S. Army. He's studied voice and piano in college. He's written hundreds of songs from rap to pop to ballads, all kinds of stuff. I think Craig, I got to stop there. What an exceptional life. Take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world.
0: You know, as I as I get a little bit older and wiser, you know, I realize there's things I'm good at, that there's things I'm I'm passionate about and probably in the 1%. I think I'm a really gifted songwriter. I think that's my biggest passion and I think I'm a pretty good marketer. You know, I think I'm in the 1% on coming up with creativity and ways to help brands grow and create more revenue. So I happen to surround myself with people who are good at, who are experts in a lot of other things. So that way I can focus on those two things. It doesn't mean I can't do operations or some of these other things, but I try to stick to what I love at this point in my life.
1: And there's a lesson right there, ladies and gentlemen. What can you do? Let's let's say that, you know, between the top 1% and 10%. Even just being in the top 10% is amazing. And as you get older, you'll move into the top 1%. What is the thing that you can do, ladies and gentlemen, that's in that top 1% to 10%? Focus in on that. And that's a big lesson right there. You know, one of my favorite songwriters is Bob Dylan. And, you know, I also love it because his voice is so terrible that I can sing along and sound like I'm him. But I'm just curious, like, what is it from your perspective that makes you know the process of writing a song something you know that comes out with a good good experience at the end for the listener? I'm
0: going to ruin music for you. For Everybody listening, I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> so I've studied songs, going back to hit songs that were nominated for Grammys or Song of the Year. I've gone back to like the '60s and I've studied hundreds of records, and I built this. I built a, a basically a process that I follow to right-hand song. So when you listen to songs on the radio, the reason they're on the radio is because they've put a lot of psychology into the records. It's not just writing a song, it's expelling your emotions. There's a science and a process behind it. There's five things that have to be in a record for it to make have any chance of being a hit record. You want to hear the five things? I would love to. So you've got to gather attention. You've got to grab attention within eight seconds with either a lyric or a production value. Right. You've got to have something in your record that 20,000 people would sing back to you. Max Martin refers to that as every song you need to put a little stupid in it. And that's why almost every hit song has whoa or some sort of <laughs> melody. That can back. Now, in the writing of the song, every four to eight bars has to have contrast, meaning when you're feeling down, you get high. You know, when you're trying to go fast, you go slow. So you've got to have contrast to split the brain psychologically and grab the listener's attention. You've got to have emotional visuals. What that means is you've got to have snapshots of what your song is about appear in the listener's brain through your wordsmith, right? Your pen has to create visuals. And so if you listen to any Taylor Swift song, you'll never hear that someone's wearing a shirt or pants. They're wearing green corduroys and they're wearing a white dress shirt with neon buttons. And those are done on purpose. Now, the third piece is you've got to make your song conversational. 99.9% of writers write songs and they think because they've got a cool rhyme scheme. I saw her reflection in the spoon by the light of the moon. They think they've written a hit song. But no, you've got to be able to tell a story in a conversational manner that has rhymes, but also has contrast and emotional visuals so there aren't as many people on this planet that can write hit songs because there's a lot of science that goes into them and you've got to combine the data analytics along with the creativity to come out with a reputable record something that's going to break through the noise so those are the components that's one of the reasons why i so love it and i'm so fascinated by it because you're basically telling somebody that you love them or you hate them or you're basically telling them all these emotions, and you're putting so much science into it, but it's got to come across as poetry, you know. So you've got to combine both data and creativity to come up with hit records. And so I am in love with the process of writing and coming up with a two and a half minute story written in that
1: type of prose. So much in that, you know, the idea of grabbing their attention right off the bat with the lyric or the production. The other one, I just love the one you said, Of you know, you need to have something in there that 20,000 people are going to sing back to you. And what I talk about when I talk about how to give a great presentation, it's like, you've got to bring it down to like three words, you know, something that the audience is going to, when they go home at the end of the day and their husband or wife says, how was all those presentations you listened to today? They're going to say one stood out. And. The other thing is the contrast, you know, that you talked about every four to eight bars. You know, you've know, you got to provide variety or else people are going to get off of it. And then emotional visions. I'm thinking back to my first girlfriend in like third grade, Diana Talarowski. And there was some Chicago song. If you leave me now, you'll take yeah. away the very part of me or whatever. And it's just like I connected that with her never forgot it i sing it back every time i hear that song but you also
0: know the next lyric is oh, baby please don't go but you get a little bit of stupid in that song right Ah, that's amazing well so much every single record has those components in it if they're a hit song you know you'll hear it and now when you sit in your car and listen to music you'll be like there's the contrast there's a little bit of stupid Oh my God, there's, you'll, you'll hear the emotional visuals. You hear it all. You'll be like, you listen to music differently now, that I've explained that to you and I apologize for that. You can't yeah. just sit back and enjoy it anymore.
1: Yeah. Now you're going to listen to this science And, and explain, you know, music has changed so much, but if I think about the way I used to listen to music, you know, I used to like turn on the, the record player and I would like lie down on the ground and listen to these massive speakers around me and I would just drift off. Listening to, let's say, Pink Floyd Animals and the song Dogs, the guitar solo by David Gilmour was just so slow and just so that I know every single I can sing that guitar solo. And again, I guess that's what you mean by production value versus lyric value. Exactly. But also there's just so much difference. You know, that's like a 15 minute, 20 minute song. So much has changed too, but maybe not. I don't know. What what is your observation of the change? Attention,
0: attention spans are low. Hit songs today, three and a half minutes is kind of the max. Attention spans, look, I've written one and a half minute songs and it just gets played five times instead of twice. You know what I mean? It's uh, kids have small attention spans. So
1: yeah. Well, fantastic and fascinating discussion. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Tell us about the circumstances leading up to and then tell us your story. Just one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Just the worst.
0: We were, so one of the businesses I own is a call center. And we were paying you know a lot for licensing a software to do order entry. And so we thought we could invest and build our own order entry platform. So we hired a team of people to build this software. And they all, we had five people, I think, building it full time, and we were probably paying each of them around 70,000 a year. Well, these programmers told us that we needed to have this certain platform or this certain piece of software to integrate with the stuff they were building. And it was an end of year, December, we had a lot of extra cash. And they were like, well, it's normally this much, but if you pay for it today, for 300 and something thousand dollars, $330,000 a year, then we will, you know, we'll, it was actually like a half billion, but they were gonna discount it to 330 if you paid it all. So literally on December 27th, we put, you know, trying to reduce our taxable income things. We're thinking it could be good value. And our programming team insisted that this was the thing we needed to finish our own platform. And we were going to save a million a year by not having to pay for outside services and outside platform. So we bit the bullet and we paid the three hundred thirty thousand. to this day. Now that was, you know, 14 years ago or 13 years ago, whatever. To this day, nobody has ever, ever logged in to that $330,000 platform. Nobody integrated it. Nobody did anything with that software. We didn't have one person use it. Not one person try to get it. And then, of course, the kick it all, this is our software team never developed a product that we could actually use. So not only did we invest in 300000 in that product, but we also invested in five salaries equal to another three hundred fifty. So we basically put almost a million dollars into building our own software, that never ended up producing anything.
1: Uh, and was there a particular day that you can remember, like, we just lost all of this and it's, it's, a, it's a, like, I can't listen to these programmers anymore and I just can't take it anymore.
0: It was probably, you know, it was probably like October of the next year, you know, when they had had 10 months to finish everything off and we weren't just, we kept looking at what they were building and there was nothing that we thought was usable. And we were just like, you know what, we got to cut bait on this. It's, we're, I think, you know, you pay them for two years. So we're talking, we are talking like a million dollars. And, right. and we had nothing. We had nothing. And so I was like, enough. Yeah. Let's, and maybe we're not in the software
1: business, right? Maybe that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this?
0: I think that, you know, maybe we should have hired people who had done it before. Maybe we hired the wrong people to build it out. I think that maybe we should have paid licensing fees for the software as opposed to buying it on an annual basis the way we did. Because then when people logged in, we would have paid for it, you know, as opposed to just dumping $330,000 in one go. My lesson, you know, you have to learn what business you're in, too. You know, you got to look as an artist. I've learned that I am a songwriter. Now I can sing. I'm in the top 10% of singers. I'm a good singer. People like to listen to me sing. When I'm in a karaoke bar, I win but I'm not Justin Bieber. I'm not Beyonce, you know? So I had to learn that I am a better writer than I am a singer. And so I had to focus on the niche of being the writer as opposed to doing all these other things that I could be doing in music. And I think the same thing holds true in businesses. If you're a company doing X, don't try to be a company doing everything else. Unless you think you're going to be successful at it and you know how you're going to be successful. Just, just take some time and think through those things. So I think that was the big lesson. Right. You right. know, and since then we've never, we've never tried to be a software company.
1: Since then, maybe I'll share a couple of things I take away from that story. The first thing is my lesson in the last, I don't know, let's say ten years is software ain't what it appears to be, and I've come to the conclusion that you know we're not in a tech revolution. It is not happening. The only way that software gets done right is when you throw hundreds of developers like Facebook and Google and others can do and then see who comes out with something and then break them out into a little group and then start and then the second thing is no software should be developed without reading the book the this this great book the lean startup that oh, yeah. talks about iterating the software with the customer and developing a minimum viable product. And because software ain't what it appears to be, you must pay as you go, iterate with a minimum amount of features and then develop over time. And even then you're going to probably change five different programmers internally, externally, all that stuff. So my lesson from listening to you, but also from my own experience is, when I hear we're going to develop an app or software, I go back in time to that show. Danger, 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 danger. What was that show? UFO. Danger uh, Will, yeah. Will Robinson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anything I you would add to they
0: that? They redid that show on Netflix. Recently. It's good. Yeah.
1: Anything you would add to
0: that? No, I, I think there's a lessons. you know, it's just... You know, I mean, look, we've lost a lot of money over the years in other areas, too. You know, yeah, I mean, another way that we look another I I had two guys working for me for 14 years in my call center. And they we had a client that we had signed a contract with at a certain rate. They went behind our backs and undercut our rate and took the business from us. Million two in business. And then during the pandemic, when agents weren't punching in, they literally used my employees to staff it. And so I was paying with salaries and payroll and government taxes and benefits for all these employees that were servicing my account, but they were servicing it under their brand. And I didn't know because of the pandemic. So is that a bad investment? It's not really a bad investment, but it's something you can learn from as far as looking at points of failure. During the pandemic, I have kind of not paid as much attention to the finances and things like that. There were some key components that I wasn't paying attention to, like my payroll percentage, which is supposed to be 54% and was sitting at 80% every month because they were using my employees. And so, you know, there's a lot of things you can learn from that is regardless of whether I'm retired from my call center or not, is the owner, I still have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to look at the business at least once a month, you know? Or if I'm not going to look at it, I should have sold it, you know? And I'm selling it now, but I had to. it took me eight months to fix it, you know, as far as turning it back around so that it was profitable again, you know, and uh, so it's, 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 there's a lot of lessons that you learn in this school yeah. hard knocks.
1: As a finance guy, I want to, I want to highlight a meta lesson here for the listeners and the viewers. And that is many years ago when I was a young guy, I remember coming across a study where they were trying to analyze what ratios were the most best predictors of future success for a company. And I thought, well, profitability, net profit margin, you know, whatever, all these different measures, return on equity. And the measure that was the best predictor of success was revenue growth. And what that told me is revenue is your shield to your mistakes. It prevents your mistakes from destroying you. If you don't get big revenue growth, you're going to be suffering significantly from your mistakes. You can recover from mistakes if you get revenue growth. And that was the advantage that we had in the business is because we had one of our best revenue years
0: in 16 years. Of course, we didn't focus on the outgoing cash, but it was easy because we maintained the revenue into this year. And then I brought my payroll back to 54%, which literally saved $2 million. So I was able to get my payroll under control with the revenue, and once I was able to save the two million extra dollars that were going towards other payroll, we ended up. You know, this year we're already at one point two million in profit. Yeah. Yep. You know, but last year I just wasn't watching that particular metric, and you know it hurt me. So you know, there's you know, so many stories of being in business for twenty years. You know that I've learned <laughs> over the years, and uh, the things I wish I knew
1: that yeah. I know now. <laughs> well, you did say yeah,
0: another. Here's the downfall. Now my brain works so well that it doesn't want to stop. You know, like at night I'm lying in bed and I'm like, I take more notes from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Yeah. And then probably most people take all, all year. I'm like, my brain just won't stop.
1: Yeah. I know that feeling. I was up at 3 a.m. thinking about all the things I wanted to get done today that are exciting. One One last thing I want to just make a comment of something that you said, and that is to review your financials, you know, once a month. And I always say basically to anybody in business, whether it's their own business or startup, that the most important thing is to get on time and accurate financial statements from your accountants. No matter what they say, oh, you don't need to close the books every month. You know, you do it every quarter, or do it every year, or whatever. That's all crap. Get the financial statements on time and accurate every single month. That's already a feat that demonstrates that you have some structure in your business, and then sit down either alone or with your team and review that every single month. And if you do that, you will prevent, even if you know nothing about it, when you look at it every single month, you're going to start to know. And when you do that, and they're on time and accurate, you are going to be able to make better decisions about your business. So that's one thing that you hinted to, and I just wanted to reinforce. Yeah, great, great point. Yep. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, let's go back in time to that moment when they were like, oh, we're going to give you a big discount. It's end of the year. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Man, I go back to that decision and think to myself, you know, look, I I really I tried to trust my team and maybe I should have done things differently as far as the way they were compensated. Or maybe I would have compensated them less on salary and more on a bonus and getting things finished. I mean, the team that was building the software should have really absorbed the responsibility of that $300,000 in some way. I mean, I could have invested up front, but it was their responsibility to deliver a finished product. So, you know, maybe I would have done things differently in how I incentivized my team to help use that software. Maybe I would have had to I just didn't have the expertise in order to make that decision. I mean, I, they said they needed it. I trusted them and I didn't know. So maybe I should have gotten somebody as an advisor. I think a lot of people don't like to ask for help. And I think that one of the things that you should do in your business is ask for help when you're not sure. I should have had another programmer that I was friends with in my other masterminds, do an interview as to why they
1: needed it. and Maybe he would have stopped me from buying it. That's golden, golden advice, golden advice for everybody out there, you know, you're in the middle of some sort of decision, you know, big decisions in your life, find a trusted independent person, a third party that you trust, that also has some knowledge in the area. I have a friend of ours for one of my businesses, we had a challenge in our factory, and he knew all about enterprise resource planning and all this software. And we asked him, hey, could you sit down with us for just, you know, a coffee and let's just get your advice on it. And we went through all of these things and you know all these problems we were facing. And he just looked at us like, wait a minute, what's the problem? And we said, OK, this is the problem, accounting. Then he said, fix the problem. Stop thinking about solving every problem. Stop thinking about enterprise, resource planning, software, and all this stuff. You've identified your problem. Fix it. And we we're like, thanks. OK, that got us really straight, really <laughs> fast. So reach out for help for everybody listening and viewing this. Reach out for help. Let me ask you, what's a resource that you'd recommend of your own or any others for our listeners?
0: As far as a book or things like that, I mean, look, I wrote a book called Hired to Quit. Yep. I think it's a great book for culture. You know, if you want to build a perfect culture within your organization, I literally started training my employees to quit and go after their own dreams. That was helpful. It lowered my turnover, great. but my employees all want to work for Listen Trust because I care about what they want. Mm. And so that's a resource as far as a book goes. I know. I also always like to recommend Matthew Kelly's book, The Dream Manager.
1: And I think that's a really powerful book for people as well. Right. And the subtitle for Hired to Quit is, well, the total title is Hired to Quit, Inspired to Stay, How yes. Focusing on Employees' Dreams Built an Exceptional Culture and Unbreakable Company. And I'll have the links to that in the show notes. Last question What's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm building my marketing company that i built by accident and that's growing like crazy so my goal on that business is to grow it to over two and a half million over the next 12 months and on the musical side you know because i do write a lot of hit songs i want to win my grammy you know, in the next 12 months maybe in the next 14 if i don't get it by february i'll need till the next february because they only win grammys once tw- once every year but the next one's in february so Maybe I'll get it done by February, but I know I'll get it done by the fall in February.
1: But we look forward to celebrating that with you. And that's exciting. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. As we conclude, Craig, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: I guess the only parting words I have the parting advice would be to um, understand the matrix of life is to look at everybody that's working around you and to help them with their goals and to really be unselfish and give before you take and to be a person of faith who believes that when you help others, the universe will come back around and help you. And so in my life, I've done that all my life. So in my phone, I have about 7,000 phone numbers. I would say I have close to a 1,000 millionaires and maybe 12 billionaires because I believed in them when they were 20. One of the kids is a billionaire. We sat down at our first dinner together, and we both ordered the water and the bread. You know, <laughs> you just you don't know who's going to make it. So treat everybody around here. Believe in other people's ability to dream. You know, believe in other people. And if you're there for them when they're not a big deal, they'll be there for you when
1: they are. So that's my, my parting advice. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.